OCCC family. Uh, for those I may not know, uh, my name is Alan Gunn, and it's my privilege to serve you here as an elder at CCC, and uh, this morning to lead us in our reading of the scripture and our corporate prayer. So please remain standing as we do those things. In our scripture this morning, uh, we have uh, two readings. Uh, the first is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then additionally, uh, Proverbs 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. What a gift and a joy it is to be gathered together here this morning in worship. To sing your praises, to be still and know that you are God. We just thank you, Lord, uh, for that opportunity. We just pray you'd be with Pastor Ryan as he comes to bring us the message this morning. Pray that uh, his words would be your words, that you would allow him to speak your truth into our hearts and our lives, that we'd be both edified and convicted, that we'd not go from here untouched by the power and the strength of your word, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Alan. Good morning, Christ community. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be able to preach to you this morning. Next week, Lord willing, Pastor Jeff will be back, and we'll be starting our Resilient series. But this week, like last week, is a standalone message. And so I picked a passage of Scripture that I've often come back to over the years, one that I hope, I hope would characterize uh, my life. That's one of the reasons I did it. The second reason is I just love wisdom literature. So if you have your Bibles or devices, go ahead and turn to the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, particularly chapter 12. And as you're turning there, think with me for a moment of someone that you know that you would consider to be wise. They are a wise person in your eyes, maybe a family member or close friend, a cherished grandparent even. The question is, what makes them wise? Why do you see them that way? Is it a specific answer that they give to a deep question? Is it the way in which they communicate with family and friends? Is it that they don't try to hide behind doors and scare their wife asking for a friend? <laughs> is it how they manage their finances? or how they are prone to giving good advice, what is it that makes them wise in your mind? Now think on the other side of the coin. Someone you know that is not wise. Really, they are the opposite of being wise. They are what the Bible would call a fool. What makes them a fool? Why do you see them that way? Is it a wrong choice that they made in life or a series of wrong choices? Do they speak out of turn often, putting their foot in their mouth, so to speak? Or when they speak, is it just of no substance? They don't really add to the conversation. Or maybe they have a differing view on something than you do. What makes them a fool in your mind? Well, the book of Proverbs, where we find ourselves this morning, and really the whole Bible speaks to those descriptions. It has something in particular to say 
about what makes a person wise or a fool, and therefore how our behavior can often reveal us to be a wise person or a foolish person. So today we will look more closely at a verse from Proverbs that in part provides a picture of what a wise person does and what the fool does. And because we're just jumping right into this book, it is a standalone message, allow me to provide a brief background. The book of Proverbs, along with Ecclesiastes and Job, are classified as wisdom literature. And this book in particular, Proverbs, seeks to inform the reader what wisdom would say about a wide variety of topics that every single one of us experiences. Life, death, time, joy, youthfulness and grief, maturity, husbands and wives and how we relate, children and parents, the list goes on. The book has much to say on a variety of issues. And the structure of the book is really divided up into three sections. Chapter one through nine are considered the prologue of the book, and they take the tone of a father writing to a son and encouraging him to pursue after Lady Wisdom and to flee from Lady Folly. And then the second section, chapter 10 verses, or verse, through uh, chapter 22, verse 16, we have the sayings of Solomon. These are the actual couplet sayings that really are what we think of whenever we hear the word proverb. And these two lines are to be contrasted typically to compare one another. And these themes that we find in these Proverbs are repeated in various ways. And then lastly, in the last section, chapter 22, verse 17 to the end of the book, we have various other sayings of the wise. And so while tons of themes, as we looked at, are are found throughout the book of Proverbs, I want to focus on the sayings of Solomon, specifically chapter 12. You see, because Proverbs distilled down, presents us with a choice, each and every one of us with a choice, folly or wisdom, the foolish things of the world or the spectacular things of God, ears that refuse to listen or ones that are open to knowing and hearing, darkened minds or eyes that can see. I could continue on with the contrast, but you get the picture, folly or wisdom, So let us read our verse for today, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but one who hates correction is stupid. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but one who hates correction is stupid. Now I have a feeling that you probably haven't heard the word stupid in a sermon as much as you will today. But nonetheless, we need to see what is happening here. The pastors and elders of Christ's community feel strongly that Christ is to be preached from all of Scripture. And so my goal this morning is for us to heed the wisdom found in this verse and to see how our need for this wisdom points us to Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, is the very power of God and the wisdom of God. So we need to see that. Let's pray that God would help us. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your people gathered here. I thank you for your word, which speaks and is timeless to us. I thank you that you have revealed truth to us. Pray, God, that we would listen with humble hearts to what your spirit has to say to us and how it will apply it to our hearts. May you be glorified more than anything. Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are four things that we need to see and meditate on from this passage. And I'm going to structure our points to correspond to the way that they are paired in this particular verse. So I'm going to give them to you up front. The four things are 
First, learn to love discipline. Second, invite correction into your life. Third, know God deeply. And fourth, don't be stupid. I could not have that point, right? First, learn to love discipline. Our text reads, as you look in verse 1, whoever loves discipline. The first word of that proverb opens the door to all of us and invites all of us together to pursue wisdom. Whoever, whoever you are hearing these words right now, there is something that God, through his word, wants to say to you. And then it says, whoever loves discipline. Well, he invited so many of us with the first word, and then he closed the door on so many of us with the next two words. Who of us loves discipline? So the question comes, what does this word discipline mean? The Hebrew word here means to discipline or to instruct or to correct. It implies someone or something bringing about an intended change in someone else. So this can look like moral correction in your life where what you say and do is not lining up with Scripture. Or it can even be theological correction. What you are thinking and saying about God is not true. The point is that your actions are not lining up with the way of wisdom. That is God's way of living. We need correction in that case. And we need correction because this side of eternity, we all know we mess up. And therefore are always growing into the image of Christ. But we will not see a life free from sin until he comes again. So we need discipline and we need correction. So this discipline can come from God and through you reading his word or hearing it preached or taught. It can come from a close friend or a mentor as they gently and lovingly point out areas of growth in our lives. It can come from your spouse or from mom or dad or surprisingly even the subtle reminders from our kids. Discipline that is correction in our life. The process of being sanctified to look more like Jesus comes from a variety of channels. But it's that statement that I just said, to look like Jesus, it's that statement that should be how we check this discipline. Are they pointing out somewhere that I am not following after or behaving like my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? You see, God and His Word are the foundation of all correction and discipline in our life. But look again what it says in verse 1. Whoever loves discipline. How strong is that word? It's not whoever likes some of the discipline. It's not whoever accepts some of the discipline or whoever listens to some of the discipline. But whoever loves it. There is an activeness to this. They pursue, this person pursues correction in their life because they know that it helps them to look more like Jesus. It is active. If you're married, you know this. Love does certain things. Love seeks things out. Love listens and acknowledges and causes us to do, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to examine ourselves. Love does certain things. And yes, the Lord has redeemed you and sanctified you and is sanctifying you. But yes, you have a responsibility to pursue hard after him. And this is part of what loving discipline means. And part of this loving is recognizing that this discipline promotes our holiness and is for our good. Hebrews 12, 
5b through 6. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. A few verses later, verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And the opposite is something to think about deeply. If there is an absence of correction and discipline in your life, whether it be from God's word or from his spirit or even from his people, then how are you sharing in the pursuit of holiness? If God's word isn't actively changing you, if you don't have people speaking into your life that can shape you and sharpen you, then one could argue that there is an absence of discipline and maybe, just maybe, your growth is being stunted. And the truth of the matter concerning loving discipline is this. Loving discipline does not come naturally. Amen? Our sinful hearts hate it, if we're being honest. We in our sin are like the second line of this proverb and are a fool because we don't want to hear the discipline. We resonate with what the king of Israel said about the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. I hate him because he never prophesies good about me. We don't want to hear from our wife or our husband on how we could better sacrificially love them. Instead, we want to tell them how they could better love us. We don't want to hear from an older person or a younger person about an area of sinfulness they notice in our lives. They just need to remove the plank from their own eye first. We naturally do not like it. But hear me here. This is a vital part of our Christian walk. We will be disciplined by God and by others. And we need to learn to love it. Again, this learning to love comes about because you recognize the intended end result in your life. It doesn't mean you will always enjoy it or like it. Hebrews said it is painful, but you learn to appreciate it for the benefit that it is to you and making you look like Jesus. This leads us to our second point, a kind of sub-point of the first one. Learn to love discipline. And second, invite correction into your life. Invite correction into your life. Those who love discipline in this proverb are to be contrasted with those who do not. Look at the second line there. But one who hates correction. So just as we looked at what the word loves, love means in the first line, so we need to underscore what it means to hate here in the second line. This implies an active disdain for someone speaking into your life, a willful refusal to see the truth of what they are saying. It doesn't say the one who just doesn't listen or the one who ignores it, but the one who has a hateful disposition towards correction and discipline is stupid. You show yourself to be a fool if that is you. And as I said before, a vital part of our Christian life is the community of the church. A large part of your sanctification from, comes from living life on life with one another, both by being corrected and through the opportunity to correct others in discipleship. So don't miss out on this. I realize the focus this morning is on how we receive this discipline, but there is a blessing for the one who is able to be used in the discipline of another just as well. They go together. 
This is in part how we practice the one another passages found throughout the New Testament. It is in this community. Passages such as John 13, love one another, which occurs at least 16 more times. Romans 12, be devoted to one another. Romans 14, build up one another. Colossians, admonish one another. Ephesians, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 1 Peter, submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another. And the list goes on. There's at least 20 more. The primary way in which we practice the one another's, including being taught and being corrected and being disciplined, is through the local church and community that we are called to be a part of. The very idea of this discipline and correction, though, is that it is brought about by another. Hear me here. We have to fight every day the temptation to privatize our Christian lives. Satan seeks nothing more than to isolate you from the family of God. Your faith is personal, yes, but it is definitely not private. When you are saved, you are brought into the family of God, and the here and now manifestation of that family of God is through your local church where you are sharpened, and by God's grace where you can sharpen others. So we have to humble ourselves and allow others to speak truth into our lives, to listen with a gentle spirit that is not first defensive to what they are saying, but first seeks to self-examine and pray that the Holy Spirit would bring about conviction or clarity to the sin issue itself. I loved hearing the testimony of Daniel's dad, Michael Hickenbotham, as we were doing these uh, elder nominee interviews this past Tuesday. And he talked about part of his testimony about how a guy in college randomly asked if he could meet with him one day. Michael says, yeah. So they go up to his room for a meeting. Once they're in the dorm room, the friend says, are you a Christian, Michael? To which he responds, well, yeah, but why do you ask? And the friend says, "Because, because I could tell there was something different about you, but I couldn't tell you were a Christian from your behavior. If you'd be willing, I'd like to invest myself in discipling you. That's a hard thing to hear. But look at what the Lord's discipline has brought about in the life of Michael. Faithfulness to God. Seeking to serve his church by being an elder. A loving Christian marriage. Children who serve the Lord. God's discipline can be painful to experience or hear, but it brings about great joy in the end. And Michael's discipline in the past has been a blessing to us as a church today, right? His son Daniel leads us in worship week in and week out and pastors and shepherds us throughout the week. So that discipline that was brought about in Michael's life has been a blessing to the church today. And how many other countless stories are true like that in this room? Discipline serves to grow the church overall. And I want to remind us now, that we are all on equal footing under the cross. The beauty of the local church is that sinners who have rebelled against God, their creator, can now through Jesus Christ come together as the redeemed saints and people of God and experience God's grace collectively and corporately. So when sin is disciplined in our lives in the midst of the local church, we don't have to worry that we are now ostracized. We don't have to worry that we're now estranged from others. We don't have to worry of being viewed as an inferior Christian. We don't have to worry that somehow we don't measure up to others here because we can rest 
and the surety that Christ has redeemed us by his blood and that as his chosen elect, we in Christ now have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. If correction can't happen here, where else can it? Let me say a quick word of warning to you who might speak the discipline into another's life, or you might hear the confession from your fellow brother or sister. Guard your heart from pride, lest you fall. Remind yourself often of what the Lord delivered you from. Do not be tempted to look down on them for their specific sin just because you don't struggle with it. This call to discipline from God's word takes a collective maturing of the congregation. So this means that when John lovingly points out an area of arrogance and pride in Bob's life, their, correct, their friendship and bond is not broken but strengthened. Or when a faithful older woman provides gentle correction on how a young mom is failing to discipline her children, she listens and then comes back to that lady for further advice. When a husband asks his wife for forgiveness for failing to lead her well, she doesn't view him as less of a man but actually as more of one. Within the body of Christ, our standing is not based on our failures but on the Savior who redeemed us. Therefore, we are equal. So let us be a place that grows in loving the discipline that comes from God and from his people. I'll close out this point with an illustration of my own, much like Michael's. I've shared this story to the men here before, I think on a men's retreat, but in my first year of seminary, a little over seven years ago, I had the temptation to be one who hates correction. I had known this particular guy for maybe two months, and we had started attending the same church and doing the same internship. And because of that, I asked if he would be willing to meet once a week for some accountability and prayer. By this point, we had probably hung out four or five times with our wives. Neither of us had any children then. So early one morning for our first meeting, he comes over, and he takes me to Ephesians 5 where it says that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and to promote her holiness by washing her with the water of the word. We read the passage, and then he looked at me and said, Ryan, I've hung out with you and your wife a few times now. And I noticed the manner in which you speak about her isn't like this. She's often the target of your jokes, and you often belittle her. Now everything in me wanted to hate what he said to explain it away, to come to my own defense, to simply tell him that he didn't understand. But his gentle and firm rebuke combined with the conviction of the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me. He was right. And by God's grace, I look back on that moment as a defining moment in my Christian walk. And to this day, he's one of my closest friends. So a way in which we learn to love discipline is by inviting correction into our lives and hearing it truthfully. Thirdly, our third point this morning, know God deeply. Know God deeply. Back to the first line, chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Think with me here. Reason with me. The byproduct of loving discipline, this proverb tells us, is that we in turn love knowledge. But knowledge of what is the question? There are many things that we can be knowledgeable about, but what kind of knowledge has a lasting effect on our lives? 
This is in part why I asked Alan to read from the beginning of Proverbs for our scripture readings, as I think it helps to shed light on the answer. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. So what is it telling us? Fearing God, that is knowing Him and loving Him and cherishing Him above all else, is the beginning of knowledge. When that is true of you, you then begin to realize and to understand and to seek out truth because we serve a God who reveals truth. And when you love the discipline that his word brings in your life, when you learn to love that discipline that his people bring in your life, then you show yourself to love knowledge and in turn prove that you fear him. This is an all-encompassing truth of treasuring God above all else. And so we looked at the facet of discipline that involves correction. You remember it means correction in part, but part of being disciplined also involves instruction. Excuse me. It involves instruction. It involves gaining knowledge in how to live a life pleasing unto the Lord. It involves a process of discipleship in which you grow in your walk with God. The saying is true, if a man loves the end, he will love that which leads to the end. To love knowing God, you must love, yes, the instruction about Him, but also the pursuit of knowing Him. We must long to and work at knowing God deeply. In the preface to his famous book, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer, Packer writes, The conviction behind this book is that ignorance of God, ignorance both of His ways and of the practice of communion with Him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Ouch. In other words, Packer argues, the state of the church is often weak today because we don't know God deeply. We don't seek to understand his ways and what it means to have fellowship and friendship with him. In this horrible bifurcation, we have somehow divorced the head from the heart instead of understanding that the truths about God should directly affect and inform our affections for God. As A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. In the same book, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what goes into your mind when you think about God? It's the most important thing about us. What does this mean then? It means that right thinking leads to right worship and right living and right adoration and right wholeness to our service to God. When you think small thoughts of God, you then serve a small God and your life will show it. But when I read the scriptures, I am filled with a sense of how big my God is. The God who ordains the beginning from the end, who is working out all things, be it suffering or heartache or discipline or instruction for my good. The God who cares for the lilies of the fields and the birds in the sky, and he calls me not to worry about the future. The God who knew me and formed me in the womb, who numbers the hairs on my head as few as they may be, and calls me to know him and love him and serve him. I read about this God of the Bible, and I want to know him more because he's infinitely worthy of knowing That's the God I love and serve, not some small God. 
And that is the knowledge that we are to seek as we learn to love discipline, knowing God deeply. There's a sermon, or excuse me, a quote from a sermon by a famous preacher from past that I have hanging on the bulletin board in my office that talks about this very thing. I'd like to read an abbreviated version for you. One Sunday morning on the knowledge of God, he began his sermon like this. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which we can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that a vain man would be wise. But he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind then thoughts of God. What do you think when you think about God? We can know a lot of things about a lot of very unimportant things in this life that ultimately don't matter. So here at Christ Community, let's be purposeful about knowing our God deeply. For knowing about God and knowing God personally is the most practical thing that anyone can engage in. It affects every single area of your life. This leads us to our last point. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Allow me to read the verse once more, paying attention to the second clause. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but one who hates correction is stupid. An older translation of that word here in this verse says brutish. This Hebrew word here is closely associated with the word picture of being brutish or dumb like cattle. So we say stupid today. The idea is clear though. Stupidity reveals itself. A brutishness within you reveals itself when you hate correction. When you hate the discipline that the Lord brings about in your life. In other words, if I can be this direct, a stupid person hates correction whether it be from God's word or otherwise, whether it be written or preached or taught, they hate the discipline that close discipleship in a local church can bring, and so, and so they show themselves to be stupid. I don't know how else to practically say this. Don't be like that. As you learn to love discipline, be one who fights against the sinful nature within you that will hate correction. Listen, as we said, with a humble spirit. We don't want to be brutish to be stupid because that is contrary to the Imago Dei, the image of God that we were created in. The beast in the field, no animal on this earth is created in the image of God. This is what characterizes us as humanity, as the crown of creation. We then, in part, throw that away when we act in such a manner, when we act stupid. And what's even more frightening about this language is what it reveals to be true of us spiritually. 
we are in danger. Danger of either not knowing God truly or in danger of missing out on the opportunity of growth that discipline and correction can bring about in our lives. The Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, translates this word in the same way it uses fool in the New Testament. Look at some of its uses here. Luke 11.40, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, Fools! Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool. But God said to him, you fool! This very night your life is demanded of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? 1 Peter 2, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Ephesians 5, 17, so don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. A fool, a stupid person, is not something I want to be called by God nor characterized by in my life. And so in light of Ephesians 5, what is the Lord's will for your life? Well, brothers and sisters, we've been talking about it this morning. Embrace his discipline and correction. Learn to love it and invite it into your life as you see how the grace of God continues to grow you and shape you into the image of his son. Don't be stupid. Don't be a fool. Flee from the sins that seek to ensnare you and run to the cross that frees you. A few months back, Pastor Daniel, if you remember, preached a great sermon on how the imperatives in the Bible, that is, the commands or the truth statements of God, are rooted and grounded in the indicatives. In the indicatives, that is what is true of you in Jesus Christ, that your sins are forgiven and that his righteousness is yours. That then informs you and enables you by his Holy Spirit to live out a godly life, to obey those imperatives. But this is also true when we look at the descriptions of wise living and foolish living in the Proverbs. The indicatives allow us to live a wise life, not a foolish life. What has been done for us through the death and burial and resurrection then allows us to act in accordance with his will. So hear me here. When he chose you before the foundation of the world and redeemed you, and called you his own, and then he transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, he equipped you by his spirit to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So walk in it. These indicatives allow you to learn to obey and practice the imperatives. Imperatives that, as as we've seen today, involve learning to love God's discipline, to invite correction into your life, to know him deeply, and to resist being a fool. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you and I thank you for your word. I praise you and I thank you that it speaks to us exactly where we are. And God, thank you, as Paul tells us, that Jesus Christ is the very power and wisdom of God. So I pray that we would recognize all the more our need for him in living a life filled with wisdom and rejecting the foolish path that the world offers us. God, help us to learn to love discipline. Help us to invite correction into our lives and to understand what it means to be a part of the local church and the community that that takes place in. God, help us to know you deeply, to pursue hard after you. God, help us not to be a fool. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thank you.